Glad to be back into the routine of the book of Hebrews, and we're going to be right into Hebrews chapter 11 again uh, this morning. I'm excited about it. We're launching with a couple verses right uh, right in the middle of the chapter that are summary verses. So they're good catch-up verses in terms of what Hebrews 11 is all about. Listen as I read verses 13 through 15. Let's just get started there. 13 through 16. Let's do that. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Let's stop there for now. Hebrews 11 is a faith chapter of faith chapters. It has been called the hall of faith or the heroes of the faith. Men and women who are examples and models to us because they endured all the way to death in life here in faith and they endured all the way to the end. The definition of faith is at the beginning of the chapter. It says in verse one, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. The word assurance is substance. It's the idea that as a believer, you know something to be true, substantively true with assurance. And then the other word here, full conviction, conviction. The songs that we have just sung, the truths behind those songs are substance to us. They are a reality that we taste and see and know and believe in and stake our lives on. And this is the life of faith. And these examples, all the way back to the pre-flood examples of Abel and, and then Enoch and others, Noah, these are the examples who saw truth and saw the promises of God and then responded accordingly. And then as we have learned about Abraham and Sarah, who are, um, a father and a mother in the faith to us. We see that throughout this chapter, people saw the promises of, promises of God substantively. They were truths. They weren't just, just Bible lessons. These are lifelines. These are anchors. These are handholds in life that you're climbing through life on, hanging on to, persevering on, seeing the end of a finish line, running towards the end of the finish line as you live the journey of faith. They're examples to us. They see with conviction and they did with conviction. And that's the pattern that you see again and again. Well, verses 13 through 16 build a bridge and they answer why these heroes of the faith are at center stage. Why are they here? Is it because they were one in a million people? They were just, they just happened to be superstars in the faith? No, not really. They were the inspired examples, inspired by the the Old Testament scripture to show us and reveal to us 
the highs and lows of journeying in life, striving to live for God. Abraham was not perfect. We've learned of him. We've learned of his victories. We've learned of his failures. He was someone who lied to save his own skin, if you'll remember that. He told Sarah to tell Pharaoh and then a king later on that he was his sister. And that was a way of hiding the truth that they were married. And and so that was a lie. He also took Hagar to be um, a a co-wife to try to propagate the promise of God, believing that God was not fulfilling his promise to bring a progeny of faith through his lineage, through Sarah, believing that she was beyond um, the ability to conceive. And so we see that these are not perfect people. They were born in sin. They had to fight their sin and they were faced with the challenge to persevere, to run the race of Hebrews 12, one and two, all the way to the finish line. So the question is, will you Take the challenge that they did. Will you live for now and for the future? Will you live in light of heaven? Will you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Will you try to live a life where that's real? Where that's real. That's not just spoken into the air. That's not just something we engage in Bible study, but really living a life in light of the promises of God. A lot of people live their Christian life in the judgment motivation. They don't want to be chastened by God. They don't want to deal with the consequences of a failed, a failure or sin. And that's good to be warned of judgment. That's good to be warned of those things. But it's also notable to see that every one of these heroes listed, pre-flood heroes, Abraham, Sarah, Noah, the, the heroes that go without, that are nameless. They're just heroes of the faith at the end of the chapter. They're all living in light of reward. They're all living in light of a different motivation, not just the, the warning of judgment or the warning of being chastened or, you know, sort of getting a, a spanking by God. It's not just that. It's living in light of there's an inheritance waiting for me. There's a promise. There's heaven. There's the promise that I'm in Christ, and that's driving me in my course of faith. This comes down to a mindset, and I want to talk about mindset. Everything rises and falls in the Christian life, first and foremost, on how you think. I want to challenge you to think biblically, think spiritually, and think in light of how these heroes thought. They saw themselves in a certain way, and you see this in verse 13 at the end of the verse. It says they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They were, uh, another word for exile, they were sojourners. And I want to define what a sojourner is. Verse 13 uses the word exile for sojourner. It also uses a synonym, stranger. In verse 13, those descriptors could be just thought strictly in terms of a negative connotation, like we're displaced, we don't belong here, we're, we're, we're really not supposed to be here, we're kind of anti this world. And those are not untrue descriptors, but perhaps the word sojourner is a more healthy, full-orbed term to describe how we are supposed to think, how you're supposed to think of yourself while you're here as a Christian. 
It's like the Alaskan who, who comes and is in a transient way. I'm here for a while and I'm, I'm doing a tour of duty or I'm doing a, a series of years in a job. I'm here. I'm enjoying all of Alaska. And then perhaps I'm going to be relaunched and reloaded somewhere else. That's not me, but that could be ye. Who knows? But I'm just saying it's a good example because this is one of the most transient places that I know of, at least in our country, perhaps in the world, where people are here, you're enjoying it, you're, you're liking it, you're building relationships, but you know that you're not supposed to end up here entirely for your whole lifetime. As a believer, we're here in this world and we need to have that sort of both and mindset where you enjoy the world, you enjoy the people, you enjoy your life. You might enjoy believers and unbelievers, different communities that you um, are guided through in God's plan to evangelize, neighbors that you'll have, work workmates that you'll have and, and the like. But Ultimately, your heart is going somewhere else. This is your home, but there's a better home. That's a sojourner's mindset, and that's the mindset of these heroes of the faith. 1 Peter 1.1 and 1 Peter 2.11 uses the same word. It uses the word exile in verses 1.1. Peter and an apostle of Jesus Christ are those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. These were Jewish Christians or new Christians who had been through the diaspora, had been spread by persecution to different regions. And they saw themselves there according to God's elective purpose. God had called them into the faith and had placed them in sovereign mission to unique places to spread the gospel. They were sojourners, 1 Peter 2.11. Beloved, I urge you, ESV uses this word, urge you as sojourners and exiles. It's that both hand, to abstain from passions, the passions of the flesh, flesh which wage war against your soul. We are exiles. We are strangers. We are here for a while, but this world, as the old hymn says, is not my home. I'm just a passing through. I'm here, but I fight against my flesh here. And there's a place one day where I won't have to do that. There's a place where I'm safer. I'm a traveler going somewhere else to a better home. So the sojourner's mindset is wealth. It really is. Everything will, even good things will ultimately dissipate. Good things destabilize, family sometimes destabilize, friends, friendships destabilize, your health destabilizes, right? Your money sometimes goes away. It takes wings and flies off. The sojourning mindset, um, it, it counters this kind of instability, no matter what is sort of fracturing or wobbly or being tested or you're wondering if it's going to be there for you or not, the sojourning mindset is a solid way to think because you know that something is solid. Something is banked for you in the future, and that is heaven. And we experience the kingdom life now by faith, by trusting in this promise of eternity. Sojourning means that when you lose things on earth, you'll find them somewhere else. Think about that. Believers living a light of this vision, they know who they are. And it's a treasured mindset. And I want to talk about this mindset from verse 13. Let's start there. Just look with me at verse 13. 
get my clock right again so I don't preach till 1230 today because I've been away for a while. All right. Verse 13. It begins with a very abrupt statement. Look at that. These all died in faith. It seems blunt, raw, like a hard thud. Why is he being negative here? Here are these heroes, but they died in faith. Um, Is this what they signed up for, for a promise not to be realized in their lifetime? They died. It's meant to hit hard so that the full meaning of what verse 13 is conveying hits home. Look further at verse 13. It says, not having received the things promised, they didn't receive it. They died before they received what they were looking for. All of these heroes in one sense, um, especially the immediate ones, are looking for God's kingdom promised to be fulfilled even on earth. Think of the promised land. Think of Israel becoming a nation and a testimony. Abraham died before that promise was fulfilled. Was this a wasted investment? This is the idea of how these Men and women were characterized, but go further in verse 13. It says, but even though they died in faith, even though they didn't receive the promise while on earth, it says, but having seen them, the promises and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, they were comfortable. They were in a mindset where they realized it's okay not to see the full fulfillment of the promise in this lifetime. I'm okay with that. I'm coming content with that. I might not know why I'm here or why my purpose is playing out the way that it is in my lifetime. And I'm accepting that I'm a sojourner. That's how I'm thinking about myself. Everything's not all the way going to come together in my lifetime, but I'm greeting a promise from afar. Now, when you're saying you greet a promise from afar, what the author is saying here is not in terms of just time, like, okay, one day I'll be in heaven and I'm going to greet that reality in that way, but more in terms of place. I'm here, but one day I will be there. And that promise, I'm greeting it just like someone that I love that I've not seen in a long time that's coming home to me for a meeting. I'm greeting a a loved friendship. You know, we need to live this way. It's not fatalism to live this way. We do care about what happens in our lifetime while we're here. But faith is like a dimmer switch. And the promises of God have to be turned up sometimes. When I sing songs like we just sang, How Great Thou Art... You know, oh Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder, consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars. I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. You know, and we sing like we just did. It, it, brings, it brings brightness to my dimmer switch. Well, I've got one of those in my kitchen and sometimes it gets turned down. And I look at our kitchen table and I think of dinner time as a little bit It looks kind of dimmed and, you know, I want it to brighten up and I turn it up and I anticipate the family enjoying food together and life together. Or I have to study and a lot of times I study at my kitchen table when I'm finishing up and the dimmer switch is low and I'm like, man, this is not going to be a good time. So I turn the, the light up and I enjoy the word of God in that way. Faith is like that. We all have light if you have faith. But you need to also have the dimmer switch turned up. It doesn't mean that you didn't have faith before. It just has to be strengthened, and it's strengthened by the power of God. 
Well, not only do sojourners think differently, they talk differently. Look at verse 14. It says, for people who speak thus, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. So they talk differently. Jesus said, from out of the mouth, the heart speaks. He was rebuking the Pharisees and saying, the abundance out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And he was calling them evil. But the opposite is certainly true. A tree that bears good fruit is known by its fruit. So what comes out of us reveals what's inside us, right? What we talk about, what we love, what we speak to. Paul basically uh, kind of blanketed his whole preaching ministry with this phrase in 2 Corinthians 4.13. He said, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak what we acknowledge, what we confess about ourselves. This is how we're thinking about ourselves. How you think will directly relate to what you say, what you care about. Verse 13, again, having acknowledged that they were strangers. That word knowledge is having confessed, homologeo. It's what you know to be true about yourself by conviction. These people knew that they were seeking a homeland. They were talking about going somewhere else. And a principled experiment is conducted. Look at verse 15. If they had been thinking about that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. It's probably talking about Abraham and Sarah and and their group. Hey, had they been thinking about it and be not deceived what you think about It will begin to guide the trajectory of your life, what you grind on, what you care about, what's in your heart, what you're meditating on. It guides where you go. Remember the children of Israel when they were complaining and saying, we should go back to Egypt. We should go back to the good food and leave this journey. That was the temptation that goes on in the mind of a person. Well, Abraham didn't do that. Abraham was content to move into a land where he wasn't possessing it yet. We learned about that weeks ago. He wasn't possessing the land. He was nomadically journeying through the promised land as if staking the claim, but not fully possessing it. He wasn't fully settled there. They had their herds and they were nomadically moving through the land. But he was in acceptance there. Otherwise, he would have gone back to the Ur of the Chaldees or even Haran that we talked about before. Instead, he was a refugee with his family, raised his children there, but never possessed it. If you're in the church and then suddenly you abandon the church, you abandon the fellowship, you leave the church and go out to the world, then you're revealing something about who you really are and who you really are not, right? We are who we hang around. When we want to be with the fellowship, we want to be with believers, we want Christian friendships, it's revealing what's going on inside. And practically speaking, when you're with believers, you talk about Christian things, don't you? And that's part of the the journey of persevering in the Christian life. We're called to be deliberate. These were very deliberate believers who guarded against a sudden return to a former way of life. And to do that is like returning like a dog to your vomit. Who's ever known someone who's a godly believer who has a terminal illness, who suddenly is beginning to detach from the things of the world? 
They know that there's a terminus to their life. And so money matters a whole lot less. Friendships matter a whole lot more. Family investment matters a whole lot more, right? Death brings that stark reality. But at the same time, you who are in full health or in varying degrees of health are to live with that same detachment to the world as we live as refugees here, desiring a better place. I think this is picked up again in verse 16, but as it is, they desire, they epithemia, they want a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. They desire a better country. That word better in verse 16 is a major theme throughout Hebrews. It's being, you know, Christ is better than the angels, uh, chapter 1, verse 4. Melchizedek, which was a type of Christ as high priest, is better than Abraham, Hebrews 7, 7. Jesus brings a better hope, Hebrews 7, 19, a better covenant, Hebrews 7, 22 and 8, 6, because he's a better sacrifice, Hebrews 9, 23. Jesus' blood is better than Abel's blood, Hebrews 12, 24. And we have a better possession because of it, Hebrews 10, 34, and a better resurrection, Hebrews eleven thirty five. 35. We have and anticipate something better. Part of living in joy as a Christian is realizing you have the best. You have the best. We have Christ. We have, we have everything in him. That's why we can seek first his kingdom. And this is a standard mindset. This is not a 2.0 Christian mindset. This is standard living. You say, well, how can I live this way in the 21st century when the world has become so enjoyable? You have to see through the facade of virtual reality, don't you? You know, as life gets more comfortable and more filled with ease with technology and things, and it does, there's this whole other side where sin is becoming increasingly pervasive and explosive. And when I see things that you know are described in Romans 1 with the digression of our culture and society and, and people losing their way in the family, the family fabric of husband and wife and these dynamic things that are, that are going to be pervasive and already are on the screens in front of us, that stark contrast should drive us to say there's something better. There's someone better. There's a better place. I don't fit in here. I'm not supposed to enjoy that. I'm supposed to enjoy Christ. So this is, this is the mindset of understanding it's better. And we're supposed to insert our names right here in the list of these heroes. God's not ashamed of you. Look at this. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. That's the heroes, but that's us. He's not ashamed of us. Why? Because we're something great? Because we're Christians 2.0? No. Because God intervened in their lives just as he intervened in your life to make you a believer. Do you get that? God intervened in Abraham's life to cause him to be a believer as he did Sarah's life and the following and all of these lives. If we believe we loved God And then he loved us. We get it wrong. We love God because he first loved us. He intervened into our lives. Look at verse 16 again. It says, for the last phrase of verse 16, he has prepared for them a city. Why why is God not ashamed of us? He's not ashamed to be called our God 
because we believe in him, but we believe in him because he prepared us to believe in him. He prepared a city for us. It's the same promise he gave to the disciples. John 14, one through three. He said, don't let your hearts be troubled. He had just told Peter, hey, you're going to deny me three times. Judas Iscariot is, you know, blowing things up in the disciples right now. He sold, sold uh, Christ out at Passover and all this is going on, right? And he's saying, I'm going to leave you soon. And where I go, you can't follow me. So it was kind of a somber moment, very sad moment for the disciples. But to encourage him, he said, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. If you're ashamed of God, then he'll be ashamed of you, of course, but we are not ashamed of God because he's already worked in our heart so that he assures he will not be ashamed of you. So that takes the the responsibility off of loving God. No, the reason we love God is by one reason alone. And that's the grace of God, right? We love God because he loved us. He graced us to love him. It's a mystery. We're responsible to love him. We're accountable to love him. We're to, we're to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but God had divine intervention in all of that by his grace we don't want to lose sight of grace. We want heaven by grace left to ourselves. We'll always settle for less. The driving force behind wanting something that's better than what the world offers is grace. And this grace in our lives, as it is found in the heroes of the faith, it, it created, it set the stage for dramatic obedience where fruit happens. Left to ourselves, we're not going to obey like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph did. But by the grace of God, guess what? In dramatic, abnormal ways, as God has worked in your heart, and as you are believing the promises, living the life as a sojourner, you're going to do abnormal things. And I didn't take the time to like theorize and think about what abnormal things we might do compared to Abraham and his story or Sarah or Isaac or Jacob or Joseph. But the list here is pretty abnormal, but in context, it's kind of interesting to think about the abnormal things that they did in light of believing. And it's interesting to search your own heart and say, you know, I'm probably going to do some pretty abnormal things in my lifetime that are different than the norm for people who don't believe. Because we do believe and we do interesting things. We give our money here. We give our time here. We show up. We listen to Jeff Crott sometimes preach. I mean, these are very abnormal things. This is, this is odd. You know, God might have brought you to Anchorage, Alaska to be on mission here. Who knows? But, the, you know, there's a lot of abnormal dynamics that happen in the Christian life that, that just on paper you wouldn't have charted out by yourself, but God has a plan and, and faith that's been born in your heart makes you do things that you wouldn't have expected to do. Some of you who are um, in second careers, starting seminary here at the, at the church, this is an abnormal thing. It really is. I did seminary at age 22. That was hard on me. Some of the men in here are doing seminary, um, you know, well into the end of their lifetime, right, Pete? I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's all but over and you're doing seminary. It's incredible. It's incredible. 
Abraham's example is exciting, though. Look at verse 17. Look at verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it is said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. You say, this is an odd and very abnormal action of faith, right? How do we square this? Even with the commandment that was still to come in the law, thou shalt not what? Kill. You can't murder. Human sacrifice doesn't seem to jive with the loving God. We're not supposed to kill people whom he made in his own image. But that is not the point of this test. Again, Abraham was a believer already at this point. And he had kind of a C minus, D plus, maybe D minus um, level of faith um, journey at this point. And we talked about his failings and falterings uh, with Hagar as a substitute, even allowing for the abuse and the exclusion of Hagar, sending her out into the wilderness and, and Sarah's deception that he was the leader in and, and all of that pragmatically trying to carry out God's promise in a faithless way. And yet God had given him faith and the dimmer switch, though it was low, it was being turned up at this point with this supreme test. And it was a test that Abraham, and this is the point I'm sort of giving away the, you know, the bacon right away at the beginning here, but it was a test that Abraham was going to pass. He was destined, I believe, by God to pass this test. This was one that was, from God's planning point, foolproof. Why do we know that? Well, look at verse 17 again. By faith, when he was tested, Abraham offered up Isaac, and he, this is Abraham, who had received the promises, was in the act of offering up his only son. He had received the promises. Now, that word received, dekomai, is the same word in 1 Corinthians 2 that says the natural man will not receive or accept the things of the Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians 2.14. They are foolishness or folly to him. In other words, when you receive the gospel, it moves from being something that's foolish to something that is beautiful inside your heart because the Spirit of God makes the gospel beautiful. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, death sacrifice on your behalf to wash away your sins, risen, glory, I'm his, I'm a son, I'm a daughter, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, I have a new life that's beautiful to you. Before you're invaded by the Holy Spirit, that's foolishness to you. So what was foolish becomes beautiful. In an Old Testament sense, the same work of grace happened in Abraham's heart. What was foolishness to him became beautiful to him. The Abrahamic covenant that was repeated a handful of times, a series of times to Abraham, that through his loins, through his progeny, that faith, a, a, the families of the earth were going to be believers throughout the world as believers because of his testimony and him believing that covenant, that Abrahamic covenant was being sealed in his mind as something that was beautiful. 
Remember, even through the story of his, his wobbly faith over Sarah, who is barren, she's, you know, 90. Is she, is she able to conceive? And he's wobbling over that. Ultimately, when the angel of the Lord, which I believe is Christ himself, reconfirmed and reiterated that, where Abraham laughed and then Sarah laughed, there was belief in that. That's kind of where we left off the story a, a month or so ago. There was belief uh, the dimmer switch was bright at that point. Abraham knew, and, and it says it right here in scripture, that, that through, look at verse 18, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Abraham knew that truth. Now, how this test for him to offer Abraham or offer Isaac his only son was to jive with the fact that Abraham knew that it was through Isaac that his offspring would be named. How that was to jive was by the spirit of God and by grace, even though Abraham didn't fully know how that was going to work out. Would have been ludicrous to actually offer your only son if you knew that the only way for your progeny to go on and for this faith promise to um, to work out was through Isaac staying alive. But there was an emotional side to the story and a logical side. There's a human dimension and a spiritual dimension. Let's look at the human dimension first. It goes back to, again, verse 17, where it says the promises, he, was, he received the promises, what, um, who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. That phrase, only son, speaks of love that Abraham had for his son. This was not something that Abraham was detached from where he's saying, you know, okay, I'll, I'll offer him, I'll do it, you know, or see what you'll do and see how this works out. It's okay. I, I like Isaac a little bit, but not that much. No, it was his only begotten son. This is the language of the gospels. God who gave his only begotten son, John three sixteen, John 1, 14, the glory of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This is the begotten son love language. It's the special love for his son that he had. Genesis 22, 1 through 8, if you want to turn there, I'll just kind of skim read through some of this. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. And he said, take your son, here's this love language, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac, and he cut the wood and he burnt the offering for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the knife, took the wood and the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went both of them together. There's all this connecting language here between their relationship. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering 
my son. So they both went, so they went both of them together. So again, high emotion. But at the same time, with all this high emotion, Abraham had supernatural intervention happening already in his heart. That's the point. The, the point of Abraham offering Isaac is not to be moralized in some morbid way. You're not supposed to say, you know, Abraham was truly willing to give God his best. And that was the point. I'm supposed to do that. That wasn't the point. He was willing to do something on that level. And we should be willing to do whatever God calls us to do on that level. You can preach it that way, but that really isn't, that's missing the entire point. The point is Abraham had already received the promise that his line, his faith lineage was going to go through this specific person one way or the other. And just as God had supernaturally intervened in the womb of his wife who was barren and Isaac was born of a 90 year old, even back then, this is amazing. That's going to still happen. That's where Abraham's dimmer switch light was turned up to at that point. It was bright. And that's the point. That's, he's just, now, it doesn't mean he didn't love his son. It doesn't mean that he wasn't struggling with what was going on. But he knew he was going to come back with his son and worship again from that mountain coming back down. He knew that there was going to be a sacrifice provided one way or another for his son to be saved whole through this trial, through this experience. Abraham was convinced of this. How do we know this? Look at verse 18. It says, of whom he said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He knew that. And then verse 19, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, to resurrect Isaac from death, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. There's that word receive again. Uh, but let me focus on the word considered real quick. Verse 19, this is Abraham's mindset. This is the sojourner's mindset. It's a word where we get the word logarithm from. Considered is la gis samenas. It's where we get ideas of calculation or computation. Abraham was reasoning out. He was using logic. He wasn't operating in fideism or blind faith. He was something more akin to a mathematical equation that he was working out. How is this going to work out? I know God is faithful. I know the line is going to come through Isaac. I know I'm supposed to go up here. I'm not supposed to do this test. I know I'm supposed to perform a sacrifice. I know I've been told that it's going to be my son, Isaac, but I know that God is going to be faithful. So if I kill him, then God is going to have to resurrect him. Figuratively speaking, he did. The word here is Parabole, where we get the word parable. It's as if Isaac was a living parable of what resurrection looks like. Back in Genesis 22, it says, When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you've not withheld your son, your only son from me. Does that mean that Abraham had to go to that point before God genuinely knew where Abraham's heart was? I don't think so. I think this is just an anthropomorphism. It's a human way. It's, it's God working with Abraham in a human-like way to show that he is affirmed in his faith. 
So he says, do not lay a hand on the boy um, or do anything to him. Don't do that at all. Verse 13, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. This is substitutionary atonement. Um, Christ took our place just as the ram took Isaac's place. Abraham called the name of that, um, called the name of that place the Lord will provide. And it is said to this day on the Mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn declares the Lord because you've done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. You know, John Bunyan, um, one of my heroes, he wrote the Pilgrim's Progress or the Dangerous Journey, whichever title you want to think about. But he was a pastor in England in the 1600s and was put in jail for preaching and was known as a man who would preach sermons to his parishioners who would actually stand outside the wall and listen to him as he preached. And he wrote while he was in prison, but he really grieved over um, lost connection with his family. He particularly grieved about a little blind daughter that he had a special love for. He said, I saw in this condition, I was a man who was pulling down his house upon the head of his wife and children, yet I thought I must do it. I must do it. I, you know, I don't know what the cost of our faith is for any one of you. You know, what, what does it cost you to be a sojourner? But we're called to do this. We're called to live in a way that's detached from the world, yet we love Christ more and be filled with Christ more. We're called to deny ourselves. We're called to live as living sacrifices. Can I just uh, sort of close with three more quick looks at um, three more sojourners? Ab- abnormal obedience. Look at the next few verses just quickly. You have Isaac, you have Jacob, and you have Joseph. Verse 20, 21, and 22. They have one thing in common. They're all near to death. They're all just about gone. But all three men died without fully realizing the promise that they were living for. It's a difficult thing to do. How do you make sense of your life and why you do what you do? Well, you trust the promises of God, but you trust in a way where you understand that you might not realize the full extent of God's promises here on earth as you will one day in heaven. The promise of the promised land had not taken full effect. Even in Isaac's lifetime, he was still a nomad. Jacob was in exile in Egypt. And Joseph, remember Jacob went home went or went to, because Joseph summoned him there uh, to be with the rest of, rest of Joseph's uh, siblings. So Joseph, who attained greatness in Egypt, but it was greatness as a stranger in the land. He was Pharaoh's viceroy. So first of all, verse 20, look at this. What abnormal thing did Isaac do? By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Well, it really is a blessing on Jacob instead of Esau. Remember, Jacob was um, in cahoots with his mother, Rebekah, and you have... You have this, um, you have this deception that goes on where, where Isaac blessed Jacob instead of Esau, and yet Isaac accepted that, and later re respoke the blessing. Genesis twenty seven thirty three and twenty eight one to four affirming that 
Jacob would be blessed, not Esau. And then Jacob, he later on, and this is found in Genesis 48, 17 to 20, when he was dying, he blessed the sons of Joseph, but he did it in an odd way where Joseph summoned his boys in and and Jacob was going to bless um, Joseph's sons, and these blessings would have trajectories in terms of kingdom wealth in, in the promised land and leadership in Israel. And so Manasseh was placed on his right, Ephraim the younger was placed on his left, and right when the blessing was to take place, Jacob in his dying moment switches his arms and blesses um, Ephraim instead of Manasseh to be in the lead of Israel. And this all played out. And then thirdly, in verse 22, look at this. So verse 21, by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. That's the point of that in verse 22. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. You say, well, how is that interesting. Well, that's interesting because Joseph was going to die while he was in Egypt, but he was so convinced about the promised land blessing, about the future of Israel being in the promised land. He's saying, look, when I'm dead and gone, mummify me and put my mummified bones and carcass in the promised land. That's where I want to be buried. He's very clear about that and very direct. You have Moses who did that in Exodus thirteen nineteen took the bones of Joseph with him when they left the land. And then Joshua going into the promised land was actually the one that buried Joseph at Shechem, Joshua 24, 32. What's the point? The point is these heroes are pictures of greatness to us. It's a mindset where you might not understand what's going on in your life, but you're content to be a link in God's chain as he is fulfilling his kingdom promises on earth while it is in heaven. Christians know this. You know that at the end of the day, Jesus wins. Amen? We know the end of the story. We can lift our heads above our daily struggle And we can live life seeing it through the eyes of a sojourner. Let's sojourn in this life as these heroes of the faith have modeled for us. Let's invest in eternity, even this week, at work, at home, in our daily lives. Let's invest, invest, and move towards the prize, which is beyond this world to another.